Well, I'm going to go ahead and invite us to grab our Bibles or to turn our Bibles on if we have version apps and to go to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Uh, as Devin said earlier in the service, today we're talking about the topic of pride. And we're using the story of one man, King Nebuchadnezzar, as our case study to talk about where pride can lead us. Now, we have a ton to cover today, so for the sake of time, we're just going to dive right in and get to work, all right? Over the last few weeks in our Daniel series, here's what we've learned to be true of King Nebuchadnezzar from the first three chapters. Uh, We learned that he was the godless pagan, murderous, tyrant ruler of the most powerful nation on earth during the time of Daniel. This was the nation of Babylon. Uh, He was also known for being the guy that conquered, captured, and deported God's people, the nation of Israel, from the promised land that he had given them. In Daniel 1, we also find out apparently he liked to cut heads off people. Uh, He was known for cutting the heads off of servants in his kingdom that weren't living up to his standards. Uh, A couple weeks ago in Daniel 2, we found out that King Nebuchadnezzar at one point was ready to kill all the wise men in Babylon because they couldn't interpret a dream that he had. And this is how crazy he was. He was ready to kill them even though he wouldn't tell them the dream. He was out of his mind. Now, last week, Daniel 3, we found out and we saw Nebuchadnezzar ordering the live cremation of any person who refused to bow down to and worship a golden statue that he had built. Ultimately, what we've learned is the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was a prideful and evil man. He was demented in every fashion of the word. And and we've also seen something really interesting from the first few chapters of this book. I'm not sure if you've noticed it. But at times, in Daniel 1 through 3, we have seen Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging and giving thanks to the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he refused to make their God his God. Look, look, until Daniel 4. You see, the story that we're walking through today is Nebuchadnezzar's faith story. We're walking through the story of the painful and humiliating season of life that Nebuchadnezzar had to walk through due to his pride And ultimately, this was a man who literally hit rock bottom, but it was there that he finally found faith in God. Now, I'm going to just go ahead and lay all my cards on the table, all right? And I'm going to tell you my hope and prayer for today. Two things. First, I'm praying for those of you that walked into the room today without a relationship with God and thinking that you don't really need one. I'm praying that today might be the day that you finally come to the realization that there is nothing you need more in life than a relationship with him and that you put your faith in him as a God who loves you and wants to change your life. Now, I'm also praying for those of you who walked in today who are already at rock bottom. Like maybe you came into the room and the wheels are coming off. Uh, You're on the verge of, of losing your family. Maybe you already have. You've lost a job. Somebody's gotten sick and you're at rock bottom and And I'm praying that today might be the day, if that's you, that you finally stop looking around to to try and figure out how you can get out of the mess you've created. And I'm praying that you might finally look up to the God who wants to pull you out of the hell you currently find yourself in. That's my prayer. So with all that being said, I'm going to explain what's happening in Daniel 4, and then we'll read some verses together and talk about what we can learn from Nebuchadnezzar's story. Um, This chapter 
was written originally by Nebuchadnezzar as a letter to the nations of the earth. He wrote this letter after he came to faith in God, and he wrote about the process that God literally had to take him to, or take him through to, to bring him to that point. And, and in verse 4, he, he starts off by telling people that there was this one night he had a really weird dream. Anybody live in a house with somebody who has weird dreams? Like, that's my wife. Anytime my wife says, let me tell you about my dream, I'm like, here we go, right? I mean, just crazy stuff. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was a guy who had a lot of weird dreams. And this one dream that he had produced a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety in him. And here was the dream. He dreamt about this large tree. He said that it grew to unbelievable heights, so high that the top of the tree reached the heavens, and it could be seen from every square inch of the earth. And then he goes on to say, as he's looking at this tree in his dream, this heavenly messenger comes down. And at the command of this heavenly messenger, the tree is chopped down, it's stripped of its leaves and its branches, and then the heavenly messenger, with no further explanation, goes on to say this. Let him be drenched with dew like the beasts of the field. Let him have the mind of an animal for seven years so that everyone living will know that the most high is king. Listen, that's a weird dream. Freaked him out. And so he calls all of the wise men of Babylon together. He says, guys, here's my dream. I need you to tell me what it means. And nobody could tell him the meaning except for our boy Daniel. Now, you need to know that when Daniel first heard this dream, he had one of those uh-oh kind of moments. You see, he knew what the dream meant to the point where he went to King Nebuchadnezzar and he said, bro, I don't really want to tell you what the dream means, right? You're not going to like this. And King Nebuchadnezzar finally convinces him to spill the beans. And here's, in essence, what Daniel tells him. He says, King, the tree that you dreamt about, he said, that's you. It's you. Your power and your dominion has grown in unbelievable ways to the ends of the earth. Everyone alive today knows your name. He says, but king, due to your pride, you are about to be cut down. You're going to be driven from among men. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to lose your kingdom. And for seven years, you're going to hang out with the beasts of the field. You're going to go from ruling king to raging animal. Every morning, you're going to wake up and you're going to be covered in dew, just like them. You're going to eat grass alongside them each day. And king, this is going to happen so that you and everyone else living will know that you are not the sovereign king of the universe, but in fact, God is. In verse 27, I love this about our boy Daniel. He starts pleading with the king. He gives it this warning and starts pleading with him. And you can just hear his heart breaking for King Nebuchadnezzar in these verses. Read this, starting in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. See, Daniel says to him, king, it doesn't have to be this way, man. You don't have to experience all that you've dreamt about. King, there is a way out, and here's the way out. You have to stop living in sin. You have to stop, to stop practicing unrighteousness. You have to be willing to, to show mercy to those people that you're oppressing. In other words, Daniel was saying, King, the way out is through you choosing humility. King, you've got to stop being the prideful, evil man you've always been. And you have to make a decision to humble yourself. You see, the decision that Daniel was asking the king to make was this. 
He was saying, King, you have to decide to choose humility or you have to know that God will choose it for you if you don't. King, that's the choice you have to make. Now, don't miss what I'm going to say, but we're going to make sense of this statement on the screen throughout our time together this morning. But I want you to know that wasn't just a decision for King Nebuchadnezzar. That's a decision that every single person in this room has to make at some point in life. The decision to either humble ourselves or to allow God to choose humility for us. And here's what you need to know, and we're going to see this reflected in Nebuchadnezzar's story. If you're that person that says, well, God can choose it for me, that decision oftentimes involves pain, loss, and humiliation. Now listen, I'd love to tell you that after Daniel's warning, King, things are going to go bad for you if you don't choose humility. I'd love to tell you that after all of Daniel's pleading, that the king said, you know, man, you're right. I am an arrogant, prideful jerk. I do treat people horribly. You know what? I should probably humble myself because that whole seven years as an animal thing doesn't sound like fun. Who wants to use the bathroom where they eat and sleep? And I don't even like the taste of grass. So, so you know what? If, if I need to choose humility to avoid that kind of humiliation, then I'll, I'll do it. But what's unfortunate is that King Nebuchadnezzar does the exact opposite. He decides that he's going to be the guy to say, if God wants me to be humble, he's going to have to humble me. And in the next set of verses that we're going to read, we find proof of this. Look at verses 29 through 32. At the end of the 12 months, so a year has passed between Daniel warning the king and and this passage that we're reading. At the end of a year, 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the fields. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. That's seven years until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. So a year later, Nebuchadnezzar looks out at his kingdom and he has this moment of self-admiration. Look at what I have done. Look at what I've built. This kingdom, it exists because of me. It exists by me and it exists for me. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar was singing a song, right? I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. He was singing, right? And the song, while I was still in his mouth, the Bible says God spoke and said, it's over. It's over. I'm taking it all away from you, king. Because you refuse to humble yourself, I'm going to do it for you. Now, if you're like me, and you hear that, and you you read those verses, and you go, what was he thinking? Like, how could you be someone to hear a warning like that and decide, no, I'm just going to stay stuck in my pride? What in the world was Nebuchadnezzar doing in making that kind of decision? Well, the answer is really simple, and we actually find it in the passage we just read. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, he refused to admit what every person stuck in pride refuses to admit, which is this. I'm not in charge. God is. I'm not in charge. God is. You see, it is such a dangerous thing to act like we are the ones in charge of and in control of our own lives and the world we live in. To pull a King Nebuchadnezzar 
and to look at all of your success, all of your wealth, all of your accomplishments, all of your wisdom, all of your power, and to say, look at all I've done. All this, it's because of me. All this, it's by me. And all of this ultimately exists for me. Man, I'm telling you, that pride, that kind of pride, it is both dangerous and ridiculous. And we'll talk later about why it's dangerous, but, but let me tell you first why it's so ridiculous. You see, that kind of pride would be like my three-year-old daughter walking into my house with all of her little three-year-old friends and showing off all my stuff and everything I've given her and her ultimately taking credit for it all, right? Like, come on, come on in my, my toy room. See my toy room? It's because of me. Right before I was alive, they didn't even have this toy room, but because I'm here, they've given me a whole room for my toys. That's because of me. Come on up to my bedroom. See my bedroom? I'm in charge here. I call the shots in this room, right? I'm in control here. It's my, it's my bedroom. Come here. Let, let me show you my snack collection. Fruit snacks, uh, cheddar bunnies, raisins, cheese sticks, all those, they're for me. You don't touch them. I will break your arm. Those are for me, right? You see, that sounds ridiculous because it is. You see, in reality, my daughter isn't in charge of anything in my house, and the only reason she has anything she has is because I gave it to her. And look at me, it's just as ridiculous when you and I look at everything God has given us and we take credit, right? And you see, I, I know what some of you are probably thinking right now. You're probably thinking, well, well, James, I love your cute little illustration about your daughter, but bro, here's where it breaks down. Unlike your daughter, I work hard and I have a job, dude. Like, you're thinking, well, I went to school, I earned degrees, I make money, I built my business from the ground up, blood, sweat, and tears to get to where I am in life. So James, who in the world are you to tell me that, that my successes, my hard work is ridiculous? Well, if you're thinking that way, first I would say to you that you have done the right thing by working hard to get to where you are in life. The Bible actually says that hard work honors God and that we should celebrate it. It also says that those who don't work and are lazy shouldn't eat. That's another message for a different day. But, but just know, the Bible celebrates hard work. But look, walking in pride as a result of your success or accomplishments is ridiculous for a very simple reason. Because in reality, everything you've needed to get to where you are in life has been given to you by God. The wisdom you've needed, the intelligence you've needed, the open doors you've needed, the talents and abilities you've needed, the relationships you've needed, the need to be born in this country so that you could even be afforded the opportunities that you've been given, opportunities that billions of people in our world never get. God's the one that's given you all that stuff. And it's not because you're so awesome, it's because he's so good and gracious, and this reality hit me in a huge way several years ago when I traveled to Burkina Faso, Africa for the first time. Here I am as a white American guy stepping into the third poorest country on earth out in the middle of a bush village. I mean, this is middle of nowhere Africa. And here are these little African children who have never seen a white person in their entire lives. So we show up to their village. They're hiding behind cars and trees. They're running from us anytime we get close. And as I'm watching all these kids avoid us, I had this thought cross my mind. God, why, why me? Why me? God, why is it that you allowed me to be born in one of the wealthiest, most powerful nations on earth where every opportunity that the world could offer me is at my fingertips? God, and these kids are in the third poorest country on earth, and they have no chance at life ever changing for them. 
God, why? I can tell you that it, it wasn't because you know, I'm hanging out with God before I was ever born saying, God, listen, I'm in charge here, USA. That's where it's happening. You better put me down there, right? That's not what, what happened. Instead, God in his sovereign wisdom as ruler and king of the universe decided for some reason that you and I should be born here. And we have to know that that reason has nothing to do with us gloating and becoming arrogant about our success, our wealth, our accomplishments. Instead, it has everything to do with us humbly leveraging our success, our wealth, and our accomplishments for the glory of God and for the good of people who desperately need to know the God that we know. And can we just have a real honest moment together for a moment? Let's all confess and admit today, if we will, in this moment, that everything we possess and have accomplished, it could be taken from us tomorrow. You get that, right? Can we just be humble enough to admit that? That all of those things that make us feel more in charge and in control of our lives, right? I'm about to preach to somebody. Listen, money, the more money I get, the more I feel in control, the more powerful I feel. Status, well, the, the longer my title is, the more in charge and in control I feel. Wealth, accomplishments, all those things make me feel large and, and in charge and in control of my life. Isn't it insane to think about the fact that all of those temporary earthly things that make us feel so in charge and in control of life oftentimes could be stripped from us in the blink of an eye. And look, one day they will be. You see, there's coming a day for all of us, man, whether we want to admit it or not, our lives on this earth are going to come to an end. And on that day, it's not going to matter how much money you made. It's not going to matter what, what human accomplishment looked like for you. It's not going to matter how successful you were. You're leaving all that behind. I mean, I've said it like this before. None of us get to hook the U-Haul up to the hearse after the funeral service full of all of our stuff so that we can drag it into the next life with us. Instead, it stays here. And those truths at the end of the day should remind us that we're not in charge. But, but who is? God is, God is. And that one simple truth that you see on the screens should cause every person in this room to choose humility, to confess that we are small, fragile, finite beings who have a deep need for God and a total dependency on him. But that's the decision you have to make. I mean, I can't make it for you. I wish I could, but you've got to decide that on your own. Are you willing to choose that kind of humility by yourself on your own? Or are you going to be the person that raises your hand and says, no, no, no. If that's how God wants me to live and be and think and act, then he's going to have to choose humility for me. Listen, if you're that person and you go, well, I'm just going to pull a King Nebuchadnezzar, bro. I don't really care what you're saying. Um, God can humble me if he wants me to be humble. Here's what I want you to know. When God chooses humility for you, and please understand, it's, it's not a matter of if, it's simply a matter of when. And I pray for those of us that refuse to humble ourselves and admit our need for God, I pray that God will humble you in this lifetime. Because when he humbles you in eternity, it's too late. But Philippians 2, I mean, plainly tells us that every person who has ever lived throughout history, who is alive today, there's coming a day we're all going to stand before Jesus and we're going to take a knee and we're going to confess with our own mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, that's coming for you. And so I'm just saying, 
Why not choose it here, now, on your own? And I pray for you, if you don't want to do that, that God does it for you here and now in this lifetime. But here's what I want you to know. If he does, and when he does, he only humbles you out of his great love for you. You see, the Bible teaches this truth constantly throughout the scriptures, that God humbles those he loves. God humbles those he loves. Now, I know for some of us, that statement might create some tension in us, right? Like we're thinking about our boy Nebuchadnezzar. James, how in the world could you say that it was a loving thing that God did to that man? He turned him into an animal for seven years. Bro, that doesn't sound loving. It sounds like God was trying to torture the guy. It sounds like God was trying to destroy him. You see, I would argue that that what God did in Nebuchadnezzar's life was the most loving thing he ever did for the guy. And I would also argue that the most loving thing that God can ever do for us when we're stuck in pride is crush us. And here's why. And if you take a notes, I'd encourage you to write this down. See, we have to understand that the purpose of God humbling us is not to destroy us. God's goal in humbling us is to make us desperate. Desperate for him. And here's why. Because only desperate people confess and admit their need for God. See, only desperate people reach out to God in the midst of their desperation and allow God to be all that he's promised for them. You see, it's only desperate people who will say to God, God, I can't do this on my own any longer. I need you. I'm dependent on you. God, take my life, have your way, and make me into the person you created me to be. That's God's purpose. He doesn't want to destroy us. He wants to make us desperate. And for those of you in the room who have those rock-bottom faith stories, you get that, don't you? Like, if you're that person that met Jesus as your Savior when the wheels were coming off, when you were walking through the darkest season of life you've ever been in, you get that. You get that nothing was going to work except for the kind of desperation you experienced that led you to saying yes to a God who created you and loves you more than you could ever comprehend. That's God's goal. Now, for those of you in the room who are less like hard-hearted, skeptical, I'm not buying it, James, that's stupid. God humbles us because he loves us, humbles us to make us desperate. But let me give you two things to consider that I hope will change your mind. All right, first, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. The Bible teaches that 2,000 years ago, out of his great love for us, that God crushed his one and only son, Jesus, under the weight of our sin for the purpose of bringing us as sinful people back into a right relationship with himself. I mean, Isaiah 53 actually uses that language. Jesus was crushed for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, the reason God did that to his one and only son is is simple because this room this morning, this world outside this room, it's filled up with sinful people who do sinful things. And the bad news about being a sinner, which we all are, myself included, I'll be the first to raise my hand, the Bible teaches that our sin separates us from God. Not just in the next life, but in this one. And the bad news is we can't do anything to change that. We can't come to church enough. We can't follow enough rules. We can't be nice to enough people to make our own way back into a relationship with God. And here's the really bad news. The ultimate penalty for sin is death. Not only do you die physically, but, but you die spiritually. You're separated from God for all of eternity. God crushed Jesus, so that could change for us. At the cross, Jesus hung under the weight of your sin and mine 
so that our sins could be paid for, so that you and I could have a way to come back into a right relationship with the God who created us and has a plan for our lives. He crushed his son so that we could know him, not only in this life, but in the next. And here's my question for you. What makes you think that God would be willing to crush his son, Jesus, to bring you back into a right relationship with him, but he's unwilling to crush you? See, the answer is he's not. If God knows that crushing you will bring you to a place in life in which you finally understand and admit that you are a sinful person in need of a sinless Savior whose name is Jesus, a Savior who can pull you out of the depths of sin, death, and hell and restore you back to God, give you new and eternal life, look, God won't think twice about crushing you. You have to know that God is willing to do whatever it takes to bring those he loves back into right relationship with him. He humbles those he loves. And the second thing we have to consider about this whole idea of God humbling us out of his love is, is the reward of humility. The reward of humility. I'm going to read some verses and then I'll explain what I mean. All right, check this out. And I'm going to engage you. I need you to talk a little bit this morning. So I'm going to get you to say some words out loud. So just get ready. Before destruction, this is Proverbs 18, 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before what? Honor. Now, next verse, James 4, 6. God opposes the proud but gives what? Grace to the humble. And then last, Matthew 23, 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, even if you didn't grow up in church, you're probably going to know the answer to this question. You probably heard it somewhere. But the Bible teaches that pride comes before what? The, a fall or, or destruction as some of our Bibles say. So think about this. Pride leads to destruction. Humility leads to honor, grace, and exaltation. Can I just ask you the simple question? Which of those options sound better to you? I think all of us would say the latter, right? Like if you say destruction, your line are just weird, man. I mean, but, but listen, the normal people in the room... We're going to raise our hands and say, no, 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 the whole honor, grace, exaltation thing, that sounds best to me. Now, here's the mistake people often make. They start believing that in order to know honor and exaltation, that they're going to have to make themselves look honorable, and their job is to exalt themselves in the eyes of others. You see, they use prideful means to get there. And just so you know, that's a ploy of our enemy, Satan. Satan, who the Bible calls the father of lies. He lies to us day and night. He's trying to convince you that the only way to get to where you want to be in life, a place of honor and exaltation, is to walk in pride to get there. And the reason he wants you to believe that is so that he can destroy you. God's ploy, humility. Just humble yourself. If you humble yourself, I'll give you what you want. Isn't it amazing to know that God wants for us what we want for ourselves? He wants to honor us. He wants to exalt us. He, he wants to give us grace. But listen, God refuses to do that as long as you walk in pride. And the reason is really simple. Because the sole purpose in God honoring you, showing you grace, and exalting you isn't simply to make much of you. You see, God wants to honor you, show you grace, and exalt you so that he can make much of himself through you. This is exactly what we see him doing in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Pick back up with me. Verse 34 the Bible says at the end of the day, so seven years are over, right? The dude stinks. 
He's got long hair, long beard, fingernails. They're like claws of a bird. He's as nasty as a human being could possibly get. Into the seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion. Not my dominion. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom, not my kingdom, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And I love this. Look, none can stay his hand. And none can say to him, what have you done? Are you kidding me? How dare you act like that? How dare you treat me like that? God, what are you thinking? Nebuchadnezzar says, nobody can say that to him. At the same time, my my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords, they sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right. He doesn't do anything that's wrong. Everything he does is right. And his ways are just. There is nothing unjust about our God. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. See, what I love so much about King's, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's story is this. God didn't crush him to leave him crushed. God didn't humble him to destroy him. He humbled him to make him desperate. And after seven years, when the king finally grew desperate enough to admit his need for God, listen, you know what God did? He exalted him. He exalted him. He showed him grace. I think this should speak to us. The fact that God is so gracious and loving that he will meet men like Nebuchadnezzar in the mess and hell of life that they've created for themselves and kindly pull them out. Isn't that amazing? See, I need you to know if you walked in the room this morning and you've just been living like hell every day, you don't care about God, you don't think about him, you're just that person who's prideful and evil and you do selfish things that hurt other people, I want you to know that as soon as you're ready to admit your need for God, God will meet you in grace. He's not going to look at you and go, awesome, change your ways, we'll hook up later, right? He's not going to say to you, clean your mess up and and then we'll talk. God says, whenever you're ready, You say you need me, and I'll be there. And I will be ready to pour my grace and my love out on you. He takes this man, this former pagan, godless, tyrant, murderous man, and he gives him his kingdom back. He restores Nebuchadnezzar into a right relationship with himself. And then this man writes this letter to tell the nations of the earth, this is who God is, and this is what he's done in my life. Amazing. Amazing story. Now, in closing, I want to point out one last truth from Daniel 4. See, because maybe you're that person sitting in the room and you're going, well, well, James, I'm not real prideful, bro. I figured this out a long time ago. I mean, I, I love Jesus. I love people. I need him. I'm dependent on him. Like, you got this thing figured out. Well, I want to point out one last truth for you specifically because I haven't forgotten about you that I hope will challenge you from this day on. And here's the truth. We learned from Daniel 4 that we have a God who can humble even the hardest heart. God can humble even the hardest heart. Do, do you know how much time passed 
between Daniel first meeting King Nebuchadnezzar and King Nebuchadnezzar coming to faith in God? You know how much time passed? 40 years. 40 years. Think about this. When Daniel first met the king, he's 16 years old. He doesn't see the king come to faith in his God until he's 56 years old. And what I love about our boy Daniel so much is this. He had a front row seat to all the pride, all the arrogance, all the evil, all the murders, yet he never gave up on him. He never gave up. He never lost hope that God could do something in Nebuchadnezzar's life to change him and leave him radically different. And I tell you that to challenge you with this. As a follower of Jesus, don't you dare ever give up on people that God hasn't given up on. Don't you give up on people that God hasn't given up on. Our God can humble the hardest hearts. He can save the most sinful, skeptical person that you know. Don't you give up. You keep pressing in. As long as there is breath in their lungs and blood pumping through their veins, there is a chance that God can save them and change their lives for eternity. Don't you give up. Here's what you do instead. Keep praying. Keep loving. Keep serving. Keep living out Jesus in front of them every chance you get. Don't be that annoying Christian who every time you see that person, you're like, you ready yet? You ready yet? You don't want to go to hell, do you? Woo, hell's hot. You don't want to be hot, do you? Don't be that person. That's annoying. I'm going to listen to you if that's who you are. But, but again, instead, look, through your prayer life, through the way you serve, through the way you love, through the way you live, say to God, God, I believe nothing's too hard for you. God, I believe you can change the hardest heart. God, I will not give up because this person can still be changed. Don't give up on people that God has not given up on. Let's pray together. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to just tell you that this response time, uh, it's probably going to be just a little different from our normal time. I'm going to ask two groups of people in just a moment to take some big steps. Steps that require courage. Steps that require faith. Steps that require you laying your pride down to embrace humility. And so let me talk first to those of you that walked into the room this morning without a relationship with God, not really thinking that you need one. I want you to know right now that God loves you more than you can comprehend. In spite of who you are, in spite of what you've done, in spite of how you are currently living, God loves you. And he proved it when he sent Jesus into this world to die on a cross for your sins. And Jesus himself said that if you want a relationship with God, you've got to come through him. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So you have to know that, that a simple belief in God doesn't change anything. The Bible says even the demons believe in God. You see, what God wants is not for you to simply believe in him. He wants you to need him. And the way that you express your need for God is by first expressing your need for Jesus as your Savior. And so today, if you're ready to embrace humility, to lay pride aside, to confess your need for God and your dependency upon him, I want to help you take that step. 
This prayer I'm going to lead you in, it's not a magical prayer. The prayer doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. I'm not imparting anything to you. This is just a simple way to confess your need for God and to say yes to his son, Jesus. So right in your seat, in prayer, you can just say something like this. Say, God, I need you. God, I'm desperate for you. God, I say yes to Jesus. I know that I'm a sinful person in need of a Savior. And I'm saying today that that Savior I need is Jesus. I believe, God, that out of love for me, you crushed him for my sins at the cross. God, I believe that three days later, he rose from the dead to conquer sin, death, and hell on my behalf. God, so that I wouldn't have to stay desperate, but so that I could receive grace and honor and exaltation and be used for your glory and the good of people for the rest of my life. So God, I'm, I'm asking you in your graciousness and in your love to meet me where I am, to save me, to rescue you, to, to rescue me, to forgive me, and to take my life and to make me into the person you want me to be.